Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Patrick Kwa, who is a technical mentor, coach, and board advisor. Patrick joins us from Germany. Patrick Kwa, welcome to Maintainable. Hi, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So given your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common traits that a software application is being well-maintained? That's a really good question. Uh, I think one of the interesting traits for software that's easily maintained uh, are things like people have really thought about architecture and design. So this means that they've really thought about things like cohesion and coupling. They've really thought about modeling domain topics and making sure that there's sort of good separation of concerns and definitely sort of testability as well. So I think they're some of the bigger characteristics. And I think all of those things combined make it then easier for people to come along, learn about the software, uh, and then to be able to make changes to it. When you, you mentioned code being uh, the, the, its testability, what do you mean by that in terms of writing automated tests or something else in that kind of spectrum? Yeah, so I think one of my, I guess, tests for whether our software is designed well is how easy it is it to put a unit test around it. And I think this is one of the things why I really love things like TDD, because it kind of forces you to really think about uh, how easy it is to put tests around code. You know, and there's some code that if it calls out to a database and it calls out to this other service, uh, those things are necessarily going to make it a lot harder to actually write automated tests. And they're often sort of, I guess, design or code smells showing that parts of code uh, may be doing too much and they're a little bit too coupled together. So definitely automated testing and, and making sure that you can sort of retrofit or you can actually put tests around it really easy. Do you use the metaphor technical debt at all? And if so, how do you define that at the moment? I think it's interesting. Actually, yesterday I was hosting a panel about talking with legacy and technical debt is obviously one of those things that pops up quite a lot. And I think we explored a couple of different terms about technical debt, but one of them was really about how easy or hard is it to make changes to a system. I think some people define technical debt as sort of code without tests, but for me, it's really about how easy or hard it is for to make changes to a system. I think some technical debt, uh, if you're not necessarily needing to make changes to it, you don't really have to worry about it too much. But the technical debt where you're really touching and it's maybe core to your business, uh, and you need to make sort of constant changes to it, they're sort of things that you really want to pay attention to and sort of make sure that you sort of pay off that technical debt because you're already paying the interest to that uh, immediately as you need to make changes. That makes sense. Do you often find that you've worked with developers or people in the industry that might be incorrectly labeling something as technical debt? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, this happens all the time. And, you know, I think one of the reasons that happens is because, well, well, we have a lot of people that are sort of coming into the industry new all the time. So they're learning about this process as well. Uh, and, you know, I think some people think about technical debt as, oh, I, you know, a product owner, a product manager has asked us to sort of cut out tests or to cut corners for us to launch. And that is a kind of technical debt. But, you know, it's the technical debt that you'll pay back or you'll feel almost immediately the next time that you have to make changes to that. Whereas I think there are some sort of technical debt, which, you know, is kind of more the unintentional technical debt, which is perhaps you make choices about a design approach that you feel was right uh, the first time, but then over time, you know, the industry changes, tool sets change, and maybe it ended up being the wrong choice. And so you have to actually make changes to that in the end. So that's sort of technical debt that you have to deal with. 
just because, you know, the industry has moved on. What are some technical hurdles that you've encountered over the years when you've been dealing with older cold bases? Like you mentioned legacy and, you know, on a panel yesterday talking about these things. What are some kind of common scenarios? That you, uh, like I'm assuming you've probably encountered like projects where there's a very much a lack of testing in place to some degree. Uh, what other types of challenges have you kind of found when you're like integrating into an existing piece of software? Oh, plenty. Um, so I actually did consulting with ThoughtWorks for about 14 years. So I saw a lot of different legacy systems as we tried to help clients evolve their systems that you know weren't really designed for that. So lack of tests are definitely one of those elements. Another significant one is often sort of lack of documentation. You get this quite a lot, I think, in Agile teams. Some Agile teams kind of prefer to have face-to-face -face conversation. But during that process, people forget decisions get made, and then the context of those decisions get lost in time. Uh, and so when you're looking at code bases where the teams have sort of made decisions but haven't actually written down the documentation for it as to why, uh, it's a little bit like archaeology where you're trying to guess at what it is that people were trying to do or accomplish with certain code constructs, and you're trying to look for clues. So definitely sort of lack of documentation is one of those things. A common other one which happens in a lot of major enterprises, I think, is the uh, sort of core dependency on maybe one or two people that aren't really available. Uh, so this is also, once again, maybe a reason why people don't have documentation. You know, we have this person still around an organization, you could just go ask them. But because they've been around for so long, they're often connected to so many different projects or initiatives and everyone's trying to get that knowledge. So that makes it a lot harder because uh, sort of single points of failure, people who have that expertise and they can't really change it. I've encountered that a lot myself too in, in, over the years where you go into a team or existing piece of software, there's like that one person that's been there for a really long time that seems to know everything if you ask them, but hasn't been able to really maybe find the time or even maybe even understand the purpose of like writing that documentation that would be helpful for themselves or future developers on the team. Do you have any idea of how, like, what might cause that type of scenario? Do you think it's just a lack of time, or, or is it oftentimes that early on in the project there were only a few people? You mentioned like they can talk to each other and figure this stuff out. They weren't necessarily planning for like who's going to be looking at this in 10, 15 years down the road. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I think about these things as consequences of how a system has been set up. So I'm a big systems thinker, and I think leaders and managers who are responsible for teams and organizations need to think about the system that they're creating. And one of the common ones that lead to this example behavior is often sort of the idea of individual productivity. So that person, for instance, is highly productive because they know everything in and out. And there's no incentive for them to potentially write stuff down because they're maybe being rewarded constantly for being seen as that productive person. So it's sort of the um, summary, I guess, of a hero culture where it's like, oh, no, nobody can do this except for this one person. We need that person again. And of course, that person has to come in, save the day, fixes something really rapidly. And everyone goes, ooh, like happy, but they never really ask that sort of interesting question about what led to that circumstance such that, you know, we are dependent on this person and how do we break out of that, that sort of structure. And that sort of idea of sort of double loop learning, I think, is really key to sort of changing that system. And it's often about thinking about, okay, we need to start rewarding this person differently, incentivizing them to actually start spreading their knowledge, to start writing stuff down, because at the moment there's no sort of incentives that sort of encourage that behavior. That's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm having some flashbacks to a couple of conversations I've had with teams where there's that one person on the team that's been around since the inception of the software. Even just more like in the last year, there was someone that was like 
really approaching retirement. And so there, but then there's like this weird tension of them feeling like I can't really retire yet because this hasn't really been transferred to other people's brains. And they didn't really feel like they had, they didn't understand why it was so complicated to pass that knowledge. They, so I remember going into conversations, they'd be like, let me pull up a whiteboard and start drawing out a bunch of stuff. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about now. You've like gone off talking about all these, how these things all connect, but there's like not this like existing documentation that you can keep repurposing. And we've also seen these challenges where you have documentation that's been around for a while that's now gardened or taken care of over years. And that can be another type of problem. I'm sure you've experienced that. What, what do you think is an effective a level of documentation in a project where it's where that it can be maintained in, in some way? Oh, uh, that's a really good question. I, I'm not so sure that there's like a effective measure. <laughs> I, I think of documentation as one of those things like you kind of have to keep refining it. One of the interesting things I found about documentation is it's almost something that you have to almost retest all the time. So a good test that I like to use is, for instance, when you're onboarding new people, sort of allow them to sort of test to see what documentation sort of is missing. And often, you know, if uh, documentation is well, new people shouldn't have to ask too many questions or the questions they ask will be a lot more nuanced as a result. But if they're asking really basic questions about your project and sort of fundamentals where everyone's saying, oh, well, isn't that obvious? Uh, I think that's a failure of the team of actually writing some of that documentation down. I'm a big fan of making sure that documentation kind of ends up capturing the why. So that's kind of the stuff that you can't really express in code as much uh, as to what led to those decisions or what were the trade-offs that you made that led to certain sort of choices. And I think really good documentation is structured well. So, uh, you know, it's done deliberately. So they think about how do you how do you create like a high-level map so that people can sort of charter their way through different subjects, falling down into sort of lower level detail when they need to. But, um, you know, that takes a lot of effort and, you know, it's definitely worthwhile. You know, I... Oftentimes here about developers will be pointing the fingers at stakeholders or the non-software developers within the organization for being responsible for the problems often kind of related to technical debt and why things are the way. Like, well, the product team was pushing us. They said we didn't have time for this right now. What's what's your take on that? There's truth in both sides. So I think one thing is there's obviously pressure and, you know, Software perfection, I don't think ever really exists. You know, we are learning through the process of building software, learning about the problem that we're solving, as well as learning about the tools that we use. And that all changes, so we make mistakes. And, uh, you know, hindsight's always a much better uh, sort of tool about thinking about decisions. But I think at the same time, engineers give up a bit too easy sometimes when I hear that. So when they say, oh, you know, our product owner pushed us to cut out tests and things like that. I don't think that's necessarily a decision that they should be giving to product owners. So, you know, I think about those consequences of software over the longer term and, you know, context matters. So if you're working on a business critical piece of software that will evolve over time, the practices of test automation are for the benefit of teams, developers, and to be able to continue to maintain that software. And it pays back really, really rapidly, very quickly, once you have some automated tests. I mean, just doing some simple back of the envelope calculations over how much time you spend manually testing versus investing in automation really pay back more than an order of magnitude very, very rapidly. And giving that choice to a product owner, I think, is kind of not the responsible thing to do as a sort of professional engineer. 
I've heard a, a number of guests on the podcast talk about this and how it's asking for permission or something like, oh, can we, do we also have time to work on writing tests for it? And I, I would imagine any product owner would be thinking, well, make sure it works. You know, it has to work. So how, however you decide to how, how, you, how you validate that the work that you're doing is meeting the expectations, that's probably enough for them. But then there's like, then the developer has a decision like, well, am I going to automate this? Am I going to manually test it? So it still falls on, I think, on, the, on the developers quite a bit. But it is, it is always an interesting thing when they're like, well, they didn't give us time to do that. And I'm like, how did you test it? Is it tested? Yeah, well, I tested it, but I didn't. I can't replicate my test without manually doing it, and then that might be obviously prone to human error as well. Yeah, and and I think one of the one of the challenges there, I think, is uh, developers can't always explain the value of the tests. And so, when you ask somebody, "Do you want this thing?" if they don't see the value of it, of course they'll say, "No, we don't." And I think that's the interesting thing is that I think part of the software engineer role is really educating other stakeholders where a lot of those people don't understand the nature of building software and why some of these practices help us. You know, so some of what I think about fundamental engineering practices, if you're going to build an evolvable system, things like automated testing, things like continuous delivery, uh, continuous integration servers and continuous delivery pipelines, these are things that are sort of core fundamental things that I wouldn't really ever um, sort of cut off but you also have a responsibility to educate other people about why you're spending time on these activities because there is value in it. I'm also thinking about how when developers are, even with that earlier topic related to documentation, that there's like, well, I don't have time to do that right now. I think if you had asked the product owner, would you like us to document how this should, how this is working and why it's working the way, I would imagine they'd be like, yeah, obviously, like do what you need to do to make sure that you and other people can work on it. But I think it's always like, well, do we have time to do that is, is the question. And maybe another question is, how do you not have time to do it? Because you're going to need it at some point. So but maybe there's always that idea. Like, I'll come back and tackle that later. Um, do you think later really exists most often in, in organizations? Absolutely not. No. I mean, uh, I, I think every organization, there's always more work than there is possibly time to do. You know, I think it's the whole thing about like ideas are easy, but actually delivery is really hard. You know, developers are expensive, limited time, and it gets harder over time as well as the system grows in complexity. I'd love to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about the tech lead within software development teams. What are the common challenges that you've seen people navigate from that transition from, say, individual contributing developer to becoming a tech lead? Yeah, it's a great question. And particularly with the idea of legacy systems or sort of maintainable systems, you know, I think one of the ideas of this tech lead role is also to sort of champion the things that need doing. So things like documentation, things like tests to encourage other developers to make sure that these are essential things that don't get dropped. So, you know, I think the tech lead role uh, is really essential in making sure that systems are maintainable. But when people transition from being an IC to a tech lead, they're often not thinking about what those activities are because often their previous tech lead took care of all of this. So it's a little bit of the unknown unknowns of, I didn't realize I have to spend time with a product owner educating them about all these things that developers have to do. I just assumed that they'd really understand. And so I think that's one of the big traps is that when people transition into that role, a lot of people aren't really prepared to understand what they should be doing to be an effective technical leader. You know, um, I think about good technical leadership, about creating space for software engineers to do the best job that they can to make sure that they're delivering value, but also to make sure that they're delivering value in a sustainable uh, way over the long term, which includes, you know, making sure that tasks include things for documentation, tests, and, you know, uh, making sure that code is sort of well refactored so you can continue to make changes over the long time. 
And one topic in in particular that I'm quite curious on how how difficult it can be to manage, like for tech leads to manage their time now that they made this this transition. Uh, what has been your experience with coaching people in this space in terms of like managing how they're tackling far more maybe conversations and things that are not always as spent contributing code and you know sending a pull request to someone else? Do you have some advice for people? Yeah, it's it's a super challenge because I think one of the things that you typically work like when you're a software engineer as an IC, you know, one of the interesting things is your team has a certain structure of flow, right? So typically most teams are using some sort of planning process, either Scrum or Kanban. They know how to pull work, but when you're in this sort of technical leadership role, uh, it's a bit of a free for all. So uh, you sort of feel like you have to contribute to some code, but then there's all these meetings that you get. You get all these interruptions because you want to be available to people. And so for a lot of first time people, it can feel really overwhelming, which is super natural. And uh, I think one of the things that I try to do when coaching uh, new tech leads is helping them understand kind of the difference between what I call maker versus multiplier mode. So, you know, when you're a maker, kind of the IC work or writing code, you need that focus time. And it's not going to help every five seconds to be interrupted on Slack or uh, having to uh, sort of interrupt your train of thought. You'll never get anything done. You'll get super frustrated in that process. And try to separate that work from sort of your multiplayer work, which is often going to be high interrupt, lots of meetings, uh, lots of conversation, uh, maybe some even thinking time. And so I think one of the things I really try to help new people do is really plan their time a lot more explicitly. So uh, for some tech leads, you know, they might block out time in their calendar to say this is like pure coding time and they let people in a team know no interruptions during this time because they really need that deep flow time. And I think one of the other things is particularly blocking out time for sort of planning and prioritizing your own work. And that's one of the traps that a lot of first-time people fall into because, you know, one of the interesting parts of leadership is you have a lot of freedom to think about what is important to focus on. But if you don't make time for that, you feel like you end up just reacting to what you feel is most important without really thinking through all the risky work or the important stuff and then prioritizing that. So blocking out time to focus on what are the most important things is really key. We'll be back with our interview with Patrick in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Patrick Kwa. You know, one of the things as as someone that has tech leads on my my team here, and one of the things that I've noticed is that there's that challenge of they get that when you're working on code, you get that kind of quick. Sometimes you get that quick little like win of like, ooh, I made something work. It's very obvious. Like, okay, I, I have a request, I fixed the bug, I get immediately validated in some sort of way, and like whatever biological things that happen to help like help feel good about that. Whereas when you're in the tech lead role, it's like, a, it's a slower process to see that. Sometimes you don't even get to feel that. It's like trying to make sure like, well, you're part of the people on your team's journey of feeling those, those, those sensations. And so it's, it is a, it's an interesting like paradigm shift, I think in a lot of ways. And I've had people talk about, well, now I have too many meetings or, and it's like, well, that's kind of like what the role is needed. And like someone was doing that before, or if you're, if it wasn't happening, 
that might have been a problem for why things why we needed someone to come into that role. So how how have you helped coach people in that I think in that sense of like you mentioned the multiplier role, but just taking part in the successes of other people within your team? Yes, yeah. And I think that's the real key, which is I think as a individual contributor, software engineer, you're very focused on what you personally produce. But when you're a technical leader, you really need to focus on what the output or the outcomes that your team is delivering. And the way that I kind of like to help people think about this is kind of what are the maybe problems that never, ever happened? And, you know, if you manage to avoid those things, uh, so kind of look at the alternative hypotheses and you took some action to intervene and you avoided a certain difficult conversation or two uh, people conflicting, you know, that's a really positive win. You know, I think trying to focus on the actions that you have that create sort of harmony within your team and that collaboration. But it's really hard because, as you said, it's not like an instant feedback. And it's not really that you can point to a tangible sort of feature or something that you personally produced. But you have to sort of take premise in thinking about, you know, watching people grow, how they're able to accomplish a lot more, both as individuals, but more importantly, working together as a team. And so I think it's it's trying to recognize, you know, the little nudges that you have have a multiplying effect on the overall system and how people work together as that team then has an overall much more positive impact. But I think trying to focus on team delivery and that value that the team as a whole is delivering and watching individual people grow, they're the kind of signs that I encourage people in these tech lead roles to focus on for sort of signs of reward. You know, I think about uh, software developers' career ladder, I suppose, in some ways. And this seems like part of that journey for some for developers. Do you think all developers should move in this path, or do you feel like they should very much certain types of developers that probably should avoid maybe going to tech lead role and be like, if you really, really want to keep focusing on code, you know, don't necessarily focus on that aspect of the the the, the ladder, I suppose. So I don't think everyone should go down that path because a lot of people don't want to have to deal with a lot of other people, frankly. It's hard. People is a never-ending topic that you're never, ever a master of. And for some people, that will never be fulfilling. The upside is you can have a lot more impact. People who don't want to go down that path, there's a couple of different alternatives. So one is either more specialization. So you go deeper in a particular tech stack when you are the expert at certain types of areas or you become a really sort of versatile, solid engineer. And one of the things I like to focus on is sort of technical leaders don't necessarily need to be called a tech lead or engineering manager. So I've met so many brilliant engineers who are great mentors, who help other people come up with interesting solutions to problems, even though they've not got an official title and they're still having impact and they can still stay hands on. And that's a huge value add to teams and organizations. And they don't necessarily need to have that tech lead or sort of title. So they can still be a majority of their time hands-on, but they can still help other sort of engineers and, and people in their team or in their organization. So yeah, not everyone can or should go in this direction, but everyone can also add more value regardless of the title of the job that they have. Right. You know, it's my understanding that you do quite a bit of a one-on-one and small group coaching these days. How did you find yourself navigating as an individual contributor, developer, consultant? I know you worked at a bank at one point. How did you find yourself navigating into this consulting world? So I became, uh, so I've done a lot of consulting for a lot of my career, about 14 years, and then I jumped to being a CTO 
uh, of this challenger bank in Berlin. And one of the things I'm very passionate about is really growing other leaders. So it's really about this sort of multiplier mindset. So, you know, my role as a CTO of an organization of 300-ish people is never going to be writing code on that critical path. Like I would just be such a risk point and a blocker to everything. Uh, and you wouldn't imagine the number of meetings. So the way that I multiply myself is by enabling other people who then lead other people. And that sort of sort of accumulates and snowballs. And so, um, you know, I've done that in one organization. And what I can do now is help other leaders. And I'm really focused on sort of CTOs and VP engineering or sort of scale up companies, because, you know, if you can help those people uh, effectively lead their organization as their organizations grow, everyone in that organization benefits as well. And so it's become a sort of organic kind of uh, growth where people want that support because people want to have people who've been through that process before and they also get a lot of value out of it and their organizations get a lot of value out of it immediately because they can navigate through these common problems, talk about different solutions and also feel like they have uh, some sort of support in terms of bouncing ideas off somebody that they can uh, trust in a sort of safe environment. At what point do you believe someone should seek out someone like you as a mentor, whether they're individual developers in a team or maybe when they're moving more to these uh, leadership type roles? Did you have any any mentors early on in your career that you found like that was a valuable part of your process or is it something that kind of manifested out of your experience over the years? Personally, I've actually had a lot of value in having mentors from really different fields. So um, when I was at ThoughtWorks, I was surrounded by so many brilliant technical people that um, I didn't really have a specific mentor sort of relationship with one technical person. But I got a lot of value out of talking with people from other uh, sort of departments. So I had a couple of mentors from legal and finance, just because they were really interesting different fields. And uh, it's a really great test if you're trying to communicate with non-technical people about topics as well, because it's just basically practice all the time. Um, and they just give you very different sort of perspectives. But, you know, I think it's really important for everyone to have some sort of support network and to find some sort of mentor. And it's okay to have different mentors for different times. And I think the interesting question for people to, to use when they're looking for a mentor is what area do you want to grow in? Uh, because then you'll have a different mentor depending on the area that you're trying to focus on. But you have to first work out what area you want to sort of improve in. And once you can sort of narrow that down, then it's a lot easier to find an appropriate mentor uh, because, you know, there'll be mentors for very different topics and each person will be a very bad mentor for a different topic if that's not their background. So maybe if you're, correct me if I'm wrong here, but my assumption I make is that when you're working with people in this capacity, quite often their problems aren't always technical in nature. There may be more on the like people, political challenges within organizations. Was that a, is that a fair assumption? Yeah, it's it's a combination of both. I mean, I, I think uh, technical is, technical problems are often grounded in system and, and people organizational problems. A lot of the topics that I cover with a lot of people vary from everything from, you know, trying to work with a chief product officer and trying to manage, once again, technical debt versus, uh, so, you know, re-architecture versus whatever, or re-platforming, um, all the way down to sort of team structures, all the way down to, uh, you know, technical choices of which uh, programming language do you adopt as an organization or if you choose down to, okay, I'm dealing with a really difficult engineer. How do I manage this person? Or uh, how do we get them to sort of grow out of a, a problem spot? 
So yeah, it can vary to lots of different topics. Uh, for some people, it's often also about sort of software architecture. So this is something that a lot of scale-ups uh, have issues with in terms of thinking about, okay, you know, we have maybe moving into a new region where there's different legal rules around data or, or privacy. Uh, and so they want some sort of advice around that as well. You know, as you're talking with different folks and, you know, you mentioned programming languages and software, you know, architecture, those types of topics. I would imagine that there's been, you have, you may, might've faced this as a consultant as well. Do you, have you found yourself more on the, on the side of team rewrite or team refactor? So I'm not in a team of big bang rewrite. Uh, if that makes sense. So I'm in the camp of uh, incremental sort of replace parts bit by bit. So it's kind of like the strangler approach, which is sort of building something in a new area, but allowing both to run in sort of in parallel, but uh, slowly removing things as much as possible. I've seen too many failures over my uh, career working with clients where they've been working for like two, three years to rewrite something and that never really pays off. When they're still in parallel supporting the existing system? Yeah, it's the game of never catching up, right? So, you know, they're building something else up and then they had a new feature and then they have to like sort of transplant that new feature again. And, you know, they just never win the, the race. Could you tell us a little bit about your newsletter, Level Up? Yeah, uh, so Level Up is a sort of weekly newsletter that I send out focused on sharing topics that I'm reading. So typically focused around leadership trends and technology, and then things around organization process. It actually came out through my time as CTO. So I used to send a weekly uh, email to the organization saying, here's all the things I'm learning or I'm hearing about, and here's a few learning links. And when I stopped sort of playing the role of CTO, people kind of continued asking for some sort of email. And so this is kind of the form that it's kind of developed into, and now it's sort of uh, out uh, more widely. So you can see it at levelup.qua.com. Excellent. And all you also recently launched the Tech Lead Academy. What is this and what sparked the idea? Yeah, so uh, the Tech Lead Academy is a self-driven online learning platform. Uh, and the idea is that people can go there if they want to have a focused topic on uh, something that technical leaders would like to have more depth in. So at the moment, I've got two courses around time management and systems thinking. Um, but the idea is that it's the topics that you won't really find in a typical leadership or management course, uh, which is really aimed at technical leaders. Uh, so that's kind of the idea behind the Tech Lead Academy, and it'll be sort of expanding over time as well with different topics. Awesome. I'll definitely include some links to that and, and to those in the in the show notes for people. Are these types of when you're with the with your academy approach? Is this something that you're they're able to kind of see progress throughout? The, like there's like a curriculum that they're working their way through, and then or is there something that you're kind of continuously like working with them on? Do, do they get is there much interaction with you through this process, or is it kind of more self driven entirely, and then give feedback with people? So the Tech Lead Academy is entirely self-driven, and there's a number of sort of exercises that people can sort of self-test along the way. I do do run sort of in-person workshops, but one of the interesting challenges there has been really been scaling that. So obviously with COVID, in-person is not really possible. So some of that has sort of transplanted online. But once again, it's still sort of limited to the number of people that can take part. And so I really wanted to offer this to uh, lots of people around the world, maybe different time zones that people can sort of take. Uh, so it's pretty much self-driven uh, and self-paced that people can take at their own rate. Excellent. And is this something that you would recommend for people that are managing tech leads? Um, I'm thinking about my own self, like having a couple of employees that are tech leads on different projects. And like I'm always trying to find different ways to help grow them when I'm not necessarily, um, I don't know that I would have been a good tech lead myself in some ways, but uh, so it's like trying to help people that are 
hopefully you want to do a much better job than you would do yourself. So um, I'm definitely going to look into that myself for my own team. So a few last quick questions for you. Uh, what non-software development-related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry? Oh, uh, really great question. So there's probably two books that I end up recommending. I'm going to like use two books. Uh, so one of them is the uh, Dan Pink Drive book. So this is really about the idea of extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. Um, and I think it's really helpful for technical leaders because, you know, the often question is, how do you motivate engineers? And I think that's got some really great um, sort of innate ideas. And the other one is thinking in systems, which is uh, good because it's a great introduction to systems thinking, but it's a little bit broad. So systems thinking being a toolkit you can use everywhere, but it's still a great introduction to that. Nice. I think I think, I think that's two guests in a row that I mentioned thinking in systems um, as their, one of their answers. So it's, you're in good company there. When you mentioned the, the topic related, you know, the earlier, earlier book, uh, Drive, and motivating people just as for for those who haven't had a chance to read that yet. Um, I read part of it a while back, but can you motivate people? Maybe it's just like an open question. Is that something you, you can will away or is there kind of a different philosophy behind that? I believe you can. So um, I think it's the question about for what time period that you're looking at, right? So you know, some of the book talks about how with extrinsic motivation, right? So giving people a bonus, that sort of stuff is maybe good for a short term, but then actually it's very bad over the long term for that. Whereas something like intrinsic motivation around trying to create an innate curiosity for people to maybe improve themselves or to solve a problem, that is much more sustainable and also much more fulfilling. So I believe you can, you're never guaranteed to motivate people, but I think you can. And I always think about this when I think about leadership and management is that, you know, you're really trying to craft the right conditions such that people behave in a very positive, impactful way. And for me, motivation is another type of that, which is, you know, you're trying to help people connect to, you know, the value that they're delivering, the opportunity they have to learn, uh, and also what they can choose to do to, uh, you know, um, do it their way. And I think that's super motivating for a lot of people. Nice. Well, thanks again, uh, Pat. Where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? You can find me on Twitter at PatQua um, and the same website, patqua.com. Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Patrick. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. I really love the conversation. Thanks, Robbie.